Okay, let's get into our message for today. And if, uh, if you're in your, the Bible, if you actually carry one of those hard copy ones anymore, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 8. For the digitalists amongst us, you'll be there in two clicks, Nehemiah chapter 8. We're going to talk about Jesus and the fact that this saying that, these days, this saying, the gift that keeps on giving, I've, I haven't heard that in a positive context this year. Uh, it's, here's that situation, it's just the gift that keeps on giving, you know, but it's supposed to be positive. And uh, Jesus literally is the gift that keeps on giving. And what, what that saying is saying to us is that there are truths and there are moments and there are things that can come into our life that keep providing. It's not just the moment, it's not just the joy of the time, but it can change our life forever. And I wanted to bring it from Nehemiah today, and I'm really only going to quote this one verse from Nehemiah, but it really epitomises what we're about here, because Nehemiah, if you know the story, it's, it's uh, thousands of years old, but it's a moment in Israel's history where they're trying to rebuild uh, the temple in Jerusalem, rebuild Jerusalem as a city, and there's, there's huge political opposition. There's all sorts of existing dynamics, and whenever you're bringing about change in life, the existing status quo uh, will always resist, always fight to preserve the way things are. And sometimes people are prepared to die on that hill, you know. And so Nehemiah was coming against that because since they'd, they'd come out from Israel, um, a new norm had established. And now Nehemiah comes in under God's uh, prophetic word with provision and a letter of authority. He says, I'm changing the way things are happening right here. So he's come in to disrupt and if you're a disruptor, I'm, I'm something of a disruptor. I acknowledge that. A, a, a bit of a pioneering mindset. I like to carve things from a piece of stone because you see where the statue of David is and you just got to peel it away. But when you're a disruptor, it's, it's exhausting. Uh, it's relentless because you're not just creating something. You're fighting against the status quo. You, you're fighting against culture to establish culture and to protect that culture. And so when it's in its formative moments, uh, it's very difficult. And so Nehemiah was in that, in that situation, and so were the people. And they're coming into a moment now where Ezra, the, uh, the teacher, has come up, and for the first time in, in their hearing, that whole generation had never heard the word of God. They've been in Babylon, and they've come back. And Ezra opens the book, and the Israelites were known uh, as the people of the book, and yet they'd never heard the book. And he opens up the scriptures. Well, it probably unrolls them in those days. They didn't have books, did they? They were scrolls. And he just starts reading and he just relentlessly reads at them the law and the prophets, and they begin to weep as they recognise there is right and there is wrong and there's religion and there's all this stuff going on. And so, but you know, rather than bring them to life because of the way they were processing it, it was, it was draining their soul because they came under huge conviction of the way that they'd been living their life and recognised that even though they carried the name of God, they weren't living as the people of God. So they began to weep and to mourn. And the fact of the matter is there's a time to weep, there's a time to mourn, there's, there's a time to push, and as we saw last week, there's a time to stop pushing and just pull back. And I just want to give us permission through December to begin to do that. January for most of us will be that time because December's nuts, isn't it? it it's chaos. Uh, it's parties, it's family, it's all the stuff, the, the diary is full. But we need to prep ourselves for January well. So let's go into this scripture in the context of the people weeping on hearing God's word. So they're done. And he says, go. He says, leave, depart from this now and go to your homes. Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. In other words, don't just take yourself, ensure everyone receives to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy. And that's where the word holiday comes from. It's a holy day. 
Set it aside. It's as holy unto the Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Let the joy of the Lord be your strength. Not, don't let the word of God and the conviction of your soul, you know, tempered by the Holy Spirit, drive you into unnecessary grief. There's a moment for grief, but there's a moment where your soul needs to find resolution because the human soul is not intended for grief. It's not created and designed to stay in grief. It needs to find resolution in the contrast of grief, which is joy. And joy normally only exists with a true contrast of grief as well, but we can't stay in one and neglect the other. So this is a time for a holy day. And I just had that, you, you can so relate to these guys, and I was even having a bit of a chuckle with the worship team, because we all get to this stage of year, and your strength is long gone. As a preacher, as, a, as anyone, as yourselves, you've all got your bucket of trouble, and it's relentless. And just like Nehemiah, it's like, when is this trouble going to let up? And it doesn't seem like it will. And he's saying, that's probably true because the world's going to bring you trouble. That was the one promise Jesus gave us about this. But I have overcome the world. And so the, the resolution is not to stop our trouble. The resolution is to find something greater within that and allow our, our soul to find resolution in God himself because the joy of him brings us strength. The only way you can keep going when, we're, when the tank is drained is not to rely on your own strength, but get that strength from the joy of the Lord. Remember him. You've got to have something bigger than your trouble. And so in December, I want to give us all permission just to return to joy. We must return to joy and return to joy quickly. Otherwise, uh, it's interesting what the human brain does. Um, I was listening to a, an expert on this, and I'm no, I'm no expert, but they were, who was qualifying through the, the chemistry and the biology of the brain that any state that you... you you, you stay in for more than 21 days. So if you stay in a depressive, troubled state, your brain starts to rewire and reaccustom itself to say, this is my new normal. And so the serotonin levels of dopamine, they all compensate and say, this depressive state, this is my new normal. It's not our new normal. Trouble and grief is not our normal. It's a moment. And we must intentionally find our joy in the Lord. And, and we do that. That's what I'm talking about. Sometimes we're more comfortable in grief and someone with joy freaks us out. Which one is normal? Which one is normal by biblical standards? See, as our energy cycle wanes and most of us, I'm just trying to call out the living reality that most of us are experiencing. It's December, come on now. The, our, our energy cycle wanes and we need to begin to shift. In, and we're all hoping January's it. After Christmas, baby, I'm out. And that's fine, but you must approach that season with an attitude. And when I talk about attitude, I'm not just talking you need to start thinking straight. That is true. That's partial. But attitude is a much greater concept. Uh, if you fly a plane, I know Dwayne's here, he flies a plane, he'll, he'll know the saying, attitude determines altitude. So attitude is talking about the posture with which it's an angle of approach. It's a way, there's a moment coming, how do I approach that moment? Because if my attitude is wrong coming into the moment, uh, it's, it could possibly still go pear-shaped. And I'm going to use a terrible illustration, uh, if you put the next slide up there, that, that most people are going to go, what the heck? But it's, it's most easily uh, illustrated through, uh, I'm a Formula One, I'm a racing nut, I have been since I was a little boy, I've, I've driven the race cars, I've done the stuff. And I know that you can go into a corner in a racing car uh, at the same speed as a road car or even slower, and you can still spin that car out. 
or you can go three times quicker and be perfectly balanced and go through it without any danger whatsoever. And the difference in the same car is the attitude of the car. You've got to position the car attitudinally to respond well. And, and Formula One drivers are very good at this, and so are their engineers. Um, they know that, and if you, if you watch, and it happens very quickly in a Formula One car, if you watch the in-car telemetry, and I know, I know you all do this in slow motion, um, you'll often notice very different lines, because driving a car fast is not a matter of flat out down the straight, uh, stop for the corner, and then come out as quick as you can. Any fool can do that. These guys are paid many millions of dollars because what happens between the 100 metre mark and the apex of that corner determines who's going to win that race. And you'll see all these different approaches and attitudes that they'll take to a corner. Some of them will come in early, some will come in late, um, but you'll see little flicks of the wrist and what they're doing is altering the attitude of the car and the car starts to do this in a very fine way, not better than me. Um, you get these minuscule shifts and they design the suspension rates and all these aerodynamics with that in mind. And the, and the driver uh, is expert at a fine twitch at a certain point that will just hiccup the car, just position the car so that it can turn on its centre of axis, it can turn very quickly. It's an incredibly fine art and these guys are, are complete masters at it and they, they know how to manipulate a car to have the right attitude to turn quickly. So it's all about attitude. And so the reason I raise that, uh, this, this car there, that's a McLaren, uh, I think, it, no, it's a Mercedes. Um, no one ever normally, that's, a, that was a, that's the most famous shot from about three years ago because no one had ever photographed the Formula One car in such a distorted point of attitude. He, he, you know, it, it just doesn't make sense. The tyres are all, are all distorted and squirmed out, the, it's bottoming out, the, the front wheel's nearly off the ground. You'd think this thing looks like it's out of control but it's only for a microsecond that it looks like that. But he's positioned that car so that he can hit a 1,000 horsepower in this thing and it's just going to go like a bullet. And that's exactly what happens in the next frame. There's three or four frames taken and, you, and this one looks like an anomaly. But what he's done is completely adjust the attitude to have a fast exit and take advantage of what's coming next. So the point in all of this is don't try heading into a holiday corner with the wrong attitude because you can go a lot slower and miss the whole thing. So we've got to get our attitude right and so we need to have permission and a source of joy to do that. So let's return to the point, let's return to the saying, the gift that keeps on giving. What it's meaning is that something can happen in our life that has uh, continual consequences. It's like the Toyota ad. Anyone like that Toyota ad where they, he's going through the mud paddock and everything's going wrong? Still feeling it. What they're saying is that new car feeling you get, it's like, man, the smell of that new car, won't we love that? I still smell that in my Toyota. It's now about 12 years old and 12,000 million miles down the track, but I'm still feeling it, baby. You know, <laughs> leather seats, sunroof, it, it may as well be brand new. Still feeling it. So, and this, this is what it's getting at. It's like, it's not just the new car. It can go on, uh, on, on and on. So I'm not talking about feelings here in response to your faith, but I'm talking about this thing called Christian joy, which is way more than just a feeling. It's an experience. It's a life change. It's a reality that's transforming into your soul. And sometimes we feel obligated to the ritual of sadness without the ritual of joy. But Romans 14, 17 gives the New Testament context. Paul wraps up the whole concept of what is life in the kingdom. He says it's not a matter of eating and drinking. He's talking about religious rules. It's not a matter of that, but it's of righteousness before God, peace from God, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Woohoo! Yes, sir. I can't contain this thing. I've got to jump. 
This is what kingdom can look like. And I wouldn't mind a bit more of that. So how do we, how do, we do it? How do we return to joy? Well, I found my problems aren't going away anytime soon. Yours probably aren't either. The world, we all, I had about 15 conversations yesterday at our thank you dinner for volunteers. And a lot of them were saying, gee, I really expected 2022 was going to be a good year, but I just can't wait to see the back of it. <laughs> what happened to that? I mean, COVID, COVID ended and everything was supposed to be fantastic. Um, but it's just gone pear-shaped for so many, many, maybe all the troubles that banked themselves up through the previous three years decided to come and pay us a visit, who knows. Um, but the problems aren't going away anytime soon, so I've got to find and focus on something that's bigger than my problems. Otherwise, the problems win, and I can't let them win. Problems make me cranky. There's one, you know what it's like, sometimes you get worn out and you just want to give up. Sometimes you get cranky about it. You go, life, you're going to kick me in the guts, I'm going to start kicking you back. And you, and you get a bigger motivation about this whole thing. You think, the devil, you coming at me? I'm done. I'm fighting back. And so we have, to, we have to do that, but we need to get strength for that from somewhere else. And you can't just do it in the flesh, because that's just flesh fighting flesh. You've got to come in a different spirit, and that spirit is a spirit of joy. And I love the story of Mary. It's Obviously, it's our Christmas uh, woman of the hour, I suppose. She, um, you look at her situation... She was in a really difficult spot. She had an incredibly difficult culture as a young woman, supposedly about 14 years of age, pregnant with the baby Jesus inside of her, which made absolutely no sense. She was completely misjudged, completely misunderstood. Um, She was, without all that, already oppressed as being a woman. As an Israelite, she was under threat from the Romans. There was never any assurance that they were going to make it through the next day. And as a woman, largely unable to defend herself in that culture. So on top of that, now she finds herself pregnant, unmarried, and there's no positive spin on this in that culture. There is no getting out of this position. You're unmarried and you're pregnant. We know what you've been up to. There's no escaping this. That's tough because she knows the injustice of this. There was no one advocating for that woman. No one understood her. No one probably tried. It was pretty obvious, wasn't it? And so all the judgment would have been coming at her. And the threat that the the percentage of women who died in childbirth back then was astronomical. I I forget the stats, but at one point, I think it was even up to uh, about 1800 or 1850, nearly 50% of women died in childbirth. It was not happy news. (laughs) This this, anything could happen here. And so that's the situation she's got. But, But then she found this joy in something bigger, that just happened to be growing bigger inside her, but it was a gift that would just keep on giving for her. And while she was pregnant, she visited her cousin, Elizabeth, and she was pregnant with John the Baptist, and it was like this holy get-together. Hey, it's like they're trying to high-five in the womb or something, and uh, John the Baptist does a big jump, and, and Mary starts prophesying through the middle of this darkness, and it was, believe me, it was nothing but darkness, and it wasn't going away, she suddenly gets full of the Holy Spirit, it says, and she starts to sing this song of praise, which is known globally and for thousands of years now as the Magnificat. This is, this is Mary's song of praise. This is uh, what the Catholic Church uses to, uh, uh, what do they call it, canonise her um, as a saint. And so I just want to read the whole thing out. And I want to let let it speak into your trouble right now. As someone who had nothing but God's strength now, the Spirit came upon her, released this joy, and suddenly the joy of the Lord was a strength. 
Let's read, read it out. It says, And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices. And there's a difference here because your soul can be doing one thing while your spirit does another. Let's follow that Robert Warren for a moment. Your soul, being your mind and will and emotions, can be in one state and your spirit can be in a completely different state because the Holy Spirit is dwelling in your spirit. Your soul is under your volition. It's under your control. God does not control your thoughts. And so you can choose to be thinking badly or you can choose to be troubled, all that kind of stuff, but at the same time, you can embrace the Holy Spirit and receive his joy. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. He says, I'll I'll pray with my soul, but I'll I'll also pray in my spirit. There are two things going on here, and one can overcome the other. And this is what she's experiencing. She probably couldn't explain it, but this is her life. My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Pause there again. I'm just winging it, preaching from the text here now. But the Lord has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. This is what we've been preaching into for a few weeks now. Choose the low road for yourself. Choose to go low. Choose to go slow. Because God meets you there and allow God to be the one who lifts you up. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised their ancestors. So look at the focus of her joy. It wasn't that her troubles had gone. Her focus of her joy was in a few things. Five. First one's identity. I am blessed. You are blessed. You cannot read the scriptures in the, in, in the New Testament and come away with any other conclusion that God's blessing is upon your life. Not because of what you've done and what you deserve, but because of who he is and what he's done for you to save you from your sins. So your performance is now irrelevant. There's no connection between your performance and his blessing. He wants to bless you because he's a blesser of his people. I am blessed. She sung about God's mercy. It extends to those who fear him, she said. She she rejoices in God's power. And these are the things, this is the source of joy. There's, There's my identity, this is who I am. There's God's mercy that never fails me, extends to anyone who fears him. There's God's power, he's performed great deeds and I'm gonna remember those deeds. When I, when I forget because of my troubles, I'll always remember what he's done and say, Lord, you will do it again. You will do it again. He will do it again. That joy that's in your life, he will do it again. This church started from that promise. It was just a moment in a very dark period, in a very small church service with about 15 people, where I said, Lord, I haven't seen you do things in, in, in our midst for so long. And this, this glimmer of a promise came, I'm going to do it again. And that cascaded to a series of events that launched this church. And he's done it again. In Kenmore, he's done it again. He's built his church. He's built his church strong and thankful with a group of people who love one another. God's provision, she was praying about. He fills the hungry. God's help, God helps his people. He will always help us. We never have to go through this alone. You never have to do it alone. Don't live as if you're doing this thing alone. You're not alone. And so while the troubles hadn't ended, She found a way to live 
in quiet joy. It's funny, this connection between joy and, and strength. And, and the, the hard thing about our life in, uh, in a world that's full of technology and convenience, our, our wealth has somehow isolated us from that contrast that trouble brings. Trouble brings a beautiful contrast because every dark moment has a light side. And if, you, if we haven't lived in that darkness, we don't understand. I used to marvel when I used to do visits to East Africa into the slums where there's literally, they have nothing. They think they're wealthy if there's a dollar a day being earned. They have nothing. But anyone just does this and they're all up and they're doing a jig, thanking Jesus for, for life. Somehow in the, in the contrast of darkness, the, the glimmer of what is light is just so radiant and their focus is on that. They'll admit we have trouble. They have all sorts of words for their trouble. You know, I'm in trouble. But God is good. You know? and they sing and they'll always be ready at a moment, always ready. I, I, it's such a challenge to me. I went there wondering whether any of them were Christian. I came back wondering whether I was a Christian because they were so ready to praise and I need three songs to warm up and, a, and, a, you know, and an announcement time. You know. <laughs> They're ready to go all the time, anywhere. It's incredible. But if, we're, if our culture isolates us from inconvenience, and I'm not saying go and find some more trouble, um, blessing that we, t- we have becomes normalised. We live in the normalisation of incredible blessing. It's like we're in light all the time. And so we cease to be thankful because it's normal to, to have an iPhone that always works and power that doesn't go off and, and a lovely building and great musicians. It's just take it for granted. It happens every week, doesn't it? But as we cease to be thankful, we evolve naturally into entitlement. This is normal. This is what I expect. Anything less than this is trouble for me. And so, paradoxically, the more that we are blessed, the less we tend to give thanks. The more we have, the less thankful we tend to be for it. But the the principle behind this is that blessing without thankfulness can become a curse. We can allow it to actually work against us because it atrophies our soul and we just become entitled. And the longer we are blessed, this is what I've noticed, the more we fear losing it because now it's expected and we worry what happens when I get old because perhaps I won't be wealthy, perhaps I'll die young and get sick or whatever. And so we grow in this fear. I've seen so many young people as they're in their early 20s, they're just prepared to give up anything and just do anything for God and all that kind of stuff and then suddenly, you know, they're radical people for God. Then they get married and, and the guy gets prosperous and he's got a great job and there's you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars coming in, then, well, we need to be good stewards of this and buy our second and third home, and this requires maintenance and time and send our kids to the right school, and they have to have Saturdays and Sundays out and doing all their activities because they're absolutely necessary for life. Otherwise, they're going to fall in a heap and be insecure little rat bags or something, you know. So we've got to do all this stuff, and our life gets busier and busier and busier. And then the thought comes, what if I get sick and I lose all of this? And suddenly fear becomes a controlling motivation. And this wonderful 20-something that I saw and baptised and, and prayed for and saw them full of the Spirit becomes this 30-something or 40-something neurotic person scared of everything in life and grasping at everything. Because the more we get, for the longer we have it, the more we fear that we're going to lose it. And so somehow this blessing turns into curse. And so this is where the joy of salvation is so critical. In Jesus' day, the idea of salvation was literally worth dying for. And they, they readily ran to salvation knowing it could be their death. Every one of those who followed Jesus, the 12 uh, or the 11, one was no good, uh, 
they all died uh, martyrs' death, very painful, very humiliating death. And if they were, in a heartbeat, they would do it again. You know, they would, they would die for this. It meant so much. And, and we find ourselves struggling just to live for it, just to get out of bed for it. You know, we've lost this joy of salvation. David hit the same moment, King David. He knew what it was to fight and to worship. He knew what trouble was. He'd known all of that. And yet that was the high point of his spiritual life. And then he got comfortable. Then, then he delegated the generalship to everybody else and let someone else fight the wars. I'm going to stay at home. You know, I'm 59 years old now. I'm too old to get up and preach every week and all that kind of stuff. I'll delegate it. Liam's better looking than me anyway. I've got a good face for radio. Let's just stick with that, you know. And there he was with his feet up at home and his eyes got nothing else to do but scan across the buildings. And there's Bathsheba, a young woman, bathing. And, and what else has he got to do but forget what he's been thankful for and try and grasp at life? And he just blew it. Bath, uh, he, he slept with Bathsheba. She became pregnant. And, but suddenly it all caught up with him. And one day he realises the darkness of where he descended. And he's on the road to redemption back. And he's got this path. How do I get back to where I needed to be? How do I get back to where it all began? I don't want the trouble, but can I have what, what motivated me in the first place? So Psalm 51 is in that context where he's on the, on the curve of redemption. And he says, God created me a pure heart. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. And there's this connection between a pure heart and a praising heart and a steadfast spirit. Don't cast me from your presence or take the Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. This is where redemption and restoration is going to be rooted. This is where it's going to come from. It's from the joy of salvation. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Now, he's not praying about his spirit would be a willing spirit. I looked into this in the, in the original language. He was talking about, grant me your willing spirit. Give me the joy of my salvation back. And with that, I'm going to also have that coupled with the power of your spirit that gives me will, that gives me courage, that, that helps me go on. I'll manage the joy. You give me the willing spirit. And the joy of salvation invites and seems to make a house for this willing spirit of God because God's spirit is willing He's willing to give you joy. He's willing to give us strength. He's willing to get us through. Joy is the house for that. And I've noticed a principle in life that a thankful heart, those of us who live in that place, and now I've had to do, this isn't my normal nature. I've had to drive this into myself as a spiritual discipline. And this Christmas, this is what I'm committed to doing, is to create a thankful heart because a thankful heart accompanies a growing and committed spirit. A, a thankful heart keeps me going. A thankful heart gives me strength. A thankful heart invites and stewards the blessings that God gives us well. Only a thankful heart can steward these blessings. An entitled heart demands of life. It shakes its fist when it doesn't get what it wants. And it, and it can steward, it, it houses those blessings really well. Blessings only remain blessings if they're in a vessel of thankfulness. But if I'm entitled, I'm objectifying God because he's just a slot machine that I put the coin in, I want to get something back. And the relationship with him actually diminishes if I'm entitled. But if I have a thankful heart, I'm praising God. And something in God's perspective, a heart that's thankful, is proven to be a vessel that stewards blessing well. And so he says, those who have, more will be given. It's just an observation. It's just a principle that seems to work. A thankful heart is a vessel for more blessing to come. And so thankfulness is the catalyst for joy. This is our part to play. The joy of the Lord is a partnership. 
Our part of the partnership is to be thankful. So we've got to ask the question, what do we have to be thankful for? Let me remind you of a couple of things. You have a saviour that did what was impossible for you by dying on a cross, paying the price for your sin that you could never pay for. You could never do it. There's nothing you could do to earn it. There's nothing you can do so wrong that it would take it away from you, the offer away. You've got that in the bank. You, if you've, if you've accepted this gift of Christ and placed your faith in what he's done, you are saved. You are righteous in his sight. You can take that to the spiritual bank for the rest of eternity. You can't escape him anymore. Even when you pass away, you're just going to get closer to him. It's only going up. You cannot lose for winning. I hope one of us is happy about that. You know what I mean? It's like you cannot lose. You cannot lose. It does not matter what trouble comes at you, who annoys you, who's against you. You win. You have Jesus within you. This is a gift that keeps on giving. You, you, don't, you don't just get that and just hang in there. This, this, this spirit is in you. He's giving you a willing spirit to get up and praise the Lord. Come on, my soul. Come on, my soul. Why so downcast? I have a willing spirit who wants to engage and give me everything I need. That's not bad either. God gave you another day today. I woke up. And I got to breathe again. I got to give it another go. I screw up routinely. Everyone around me knows it. But I've got another day to get it right. But if I don't, God willing, I'll get another day tomorrow as well to engage with life, to engage with God's people. What a blessing. Mate, I've had so many days. So many days. You have real purpose to add to someone's life. And you can do that right here. As I just, I beat that drum almost every week. You have a purpose in life. You are not meaningless. You are not here for nothing. You're in this room to be a blessing to someone else to go and reach out, hear their story, bless their life, and change the trajectory of their life. As my life is changed routinely by someone bothering enough to have a kind word and care for me. We can all do that. We all have a purpose. You have resources that you can give to God's purpose in your life, whether they be time or finances or spiritual gifts, whatever they are, you have all that resource to give. You have today to try again. Uh, it's not over for you. And you have the opportunity today, even right now, to discover life, to discover new hope, to create something, to take something forward, to laugh and just to be alive and be thankful for it. So before you leave today, please tell someone what you're thankful for. Even on social media uh, regularly through this month on our, on our Facebook community page, we're just going to send a reminder and I really invite you to engage with that. What are you thankful for? It, it builds me up. It edifies the body because we forget, but we can hear what you're thankful for. Put it in the stream. Put it in the post that comes up. What are you thankful for today? Encourage us. Get a part of all that. Jesus is the gift that keeps on giving. As the band comes up and I, and I want to pray, I just want to have us just have a song of praise one more time. This Sunday, this week, this month is all about the gift that keeps on giving and we're celebrating the coming of Jesus on Christmas. The world's commercialised it beyond all sense. You can't even have a Merry Christmas anymore now. It's a happy holiday, whatever. It's Christmas, it's Christ. That's why we're doing it. It's a holy day, amen? Try and take that from me, I'll kick up a fight. <laughs> it's a holy day and we're going to have a holy month. Blow the heels and lefties and whoever wants to shut the whole thing down. We're Christians. We're going to celebrate. Jesus 
came and he's here to stay and he's here to stay in you. His spirit has promised to give us all that we need for life and godliness. Let's live as if that is true because it is absolutely true and be thankful. Bless you, everyone. It's going to be a great month.